0: Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 12 of Romans 14. Uh, tomorrow we have a, a candidate coming for the life group position uh, that we've been working on multiple uh, resumes over the last few months, uh, and since Ramona retired and moved uh, to Virginia Beach area, uh, we have been looking to replace her. God has led us uh, to uh, an individual that we think is our top candidate, so he's coming here tomorrow with his wife. Uh, his name is Jim. Uh, Jim Powell and his wife is Kristen and they'll be here uh, Monday and Tuesday. Uh, so everybody on staff is going to be engaged with interviewing them, letting them ask questions. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to hire because there's so many things to cover and at the end of the day you're looking for team chemistry. So uh, pray for us tomorrow as we as staff are engaged, as elders are engaged. Uh, we're, we're looking for the will of God and wouldn't it be exciting to make that hire uh, it would be an awesome thing. So thank you for uh, just uh, praying for us for the next two days uh, regarding that decision. Let's go to prayer. God, uh, we give you the, the next uh, few moments. May it be uh, profitable in our lives, spiritually speaking, that we would move from a place where you would not want us to be to a place where you'd want us to be. And uh, give us wisdom and understanding of how to do that. It's, it's hard as you get older to make uh, course corrections and help us to learn how to do that so that our lives can be lived in a mature fashion uh and we pray for those who don't uh know you among us uh how you can take the scriptures uh and and cause the gospel to be that which is revealed to the lost is an amazing things so we pray that those who don't know you might come to know you uh because of the things that we'll talk about today in christ's name amen uh churches uh that have issues don't typically have issues over major things they, they there are issues that do divide churches and divide Christians uh, doctrinal things at times uh, sometimes moral things but but after being in church all of my life and pastoring the church for like 32 years uh, I've seen uh, churches uh, and Christians get upset over the most illogical things you're like you're fighting about what? Uh, and uh, again, I submit to you, and, and it usually happens in like a gray area, as we've talked about in Romans 14. It's an area where there's not expressed scripture about such activities, and so those who are uh, uh, mature in the faith exercise their uh, joy in Christ, their liberty in Jesus, and that upsets the, uh, well, the weaker brother, as Paul calls it, who thinks they're a stronger, mature brother, who's more about laws, rules, and regulations, and they, t- they collide, uh, I saw a collision years ago in a friend of mine uh, who, was, who took a job as a, at a church uh, in San Francisco uh, to be the pastor. He was all excited, young man. I think it was his first church, strategically located church, had been there forever. He's coming in to bring, bring new life to the church. So he, was, he was just all pumped and ready to go to preach the word of God. Uh, when he got there and started analyzing some things that needed to be changed, uh, it was a typical older church, uh, Baptist kind of church with a red carpet. Have you seen those? yeah I've I've seen many of those uh, red carpet uh you know the white uh wooded the on the pews uh, and then the red velvet you know for the uh you know the don't aren't you glad we don't do this uh, but uh, but you've seen you know the drill and, and on the stage uh were, were, were several chairs for the pastoral staff and they were more like thrones <laughs> have, have you seen these before in church? I was raised Baptist, so I get this concept um so these these pastoral thrones were on the stage and they'd been up there like Maybe since Moses walked the planet. They've been up there forever. And so as he's kind of eyeballing as a young pastor what needs to change, he realized, you know, I, I need some more room on the stage for, you know, this up-and-coming worship team, you know? I mean, we need more room for the drums, guitars, etc. We need to liven this place up. And we need more people on the worship team. There's not a place for them to stand. And those chairs are kind of in the way. So he made the executive decision to move the chairs. And he did. And he did. Uh, I said, how'd that go over for you? He said, I'll never forget the Sunday I did it. Uh, He said, uh, you know, I was up at the front talking to people, getting ready for the service and all excited for the new service without the chairs taking up all that room. And he said, uh, one of the pillars of the assembly, an old lady came up, a senior citizen uh, who had walked with God for many years. Uh, She came down a little, you know, beautiful little hat on, nice clothes, coming down to her pew, you know what I'm saying? Like like it was hers, like where she had always sat, no one sat there because they knew it was hers. And so she was walking down the middle the aisle saying hi to everybody as she always did on a Sunday morning. And she was clutching her little Bible and he said she was saying hi to folks and then when she looked up at the stage, she just froze. I mean, just like she'd seen the devil himself. And she said she screamed out holding her little Bible, Lord, they done moved the chairs. <laughs> <laughs> I said like, uh, what, what happened then? He said, a huge fight broke out. He said, they had a huge argument at the front of the church. The, you know, all the people talking about the chairs were gone. He said, I tried to calm her down, etc. He said, uh, they had a huge meeting after church. Got all the, uh, you know, because she, she said, something's got to be done about this. And so she got all the religious leaders together at that church. And, and he said, that was the last Sunday I ever preached there. <laughs> I kid you not. Shocking, isn't it? But haven't you heard stories like that? They, they fired you over what? Do you think God really cares whether the pastor moves a worship chair or not? I mean, if my podium is off-center, is that going to bother you? Yeah! <laughs> yeah, I know. You ever see me come up here and kind of reposition things? It's, it's just a personal issue I have, you know. I like things orderly. But it doesn't really matter. I could preach from over there, couldn't I? Amen. Then they'd be happy. You know, And so it really doesn't matter, but what did that, what did that uh, senior citizen, that saint done? She had taken, as I said last week, a spiritual preference and made it a spiritual principle. The Lord has said, <laughs> you got to have thrones on the stage for the pastors. I, I used to have to sit in these things. I mean, I'm so glad we don't have those things. They're not, that's not the 11th commandment. Thou shalt have pastoral thrones on the stage. It's not in there. Uh, but uh, she'd made a spiritual preference, a, a spiritual principle, and beat the pastor with it, and it cost him his job. It cost him his job. Sad, isn't it? Uh, that is, uh, whether a chair is on the stage or not for the pastor is, is a total gray area. It's a gray area. So what does God want from his church? What he wants, as we talked about last week, and we'll talk about again this week, God desires unity in his church. He desires unity in his church, and he desires it especially in, in, in gray areas. He doesn't want disunity in gray areas because they're not that big of a deal. So if he hasn't given express command about something and it's a gray area, then there's liberty in Christ. There's, there should be liberty and there should be unity. So this is what he wants. He wants gracious, loving, kind acceptance of our diversity. And boy, aren't are we diverse, right? I'm in a suit today, you're freaking out, you yeah. know? Yeah, the, the stronger brother in Christ is like, hey, what's up with the suit? you know, and the weaker brother who's thinking, praise God, he's in a suit finally. <laughs> See? <laughs> See, because the minister should be in a suit. See? But if I showed up in board shor- shorts, rainbow sandals, you know, an OP shirt, stuff, the stronger brother's thinking, praise God, we're going to reach a whole different section of the, of the country. You understand how this works? Yeah. All of a sudden it gets real when we start narrowing it down. Chuck Swindoll, Wrote a book called, back in 1990, called The Grace Awakening. Refreshing book to read about these kinds of topics. He says this, God is pleased with a variety. This freedom to be who we are is nothing short of magnificent. It's, that's, that's true. Uh, he said it is freedom to make choices, freedom to know his will, freedom to walk in it, freedom to obey his leading in my life and in your life. Once you've tasted such freedom, freedom, nothing else satisfies. It's the truth. You know, because I, I, I get the legalistic kind of church. There's not a whole lot of joy there because there's all these rules and regulations you've got to conform to to be holy. But when you taste freedom in gray areas, wow, he's absolutely right. Nothing else satisfies. And so what does God want? He wants unity in his church in those gray areas where there's freedom. uh, And we need to understand how to get to unity because it's always challenged in these areas. So we want to review from last week um, the unity principles in chapter 14 because they have problems in the Roman church. And so unity principle number one, by way of review, is this. Number one, mature saints who enjoy freedom in gray areas should accept immature saints who are more restrictive. So if you enjoy your freedom in Jesus to to do things that he doesn't have a command against, enjoy it. But don't show disdain for those who are wound tighter than you. So if I move over here, don't freak, right? You're already so quiet. See, you're like, well, you couldn't handle that. (laughs) Anyway. Uh, number two, unity key number two, check your attitude where non-essentials are concerned. What's your attitude like? Good attitude, bad attitude, etc. cetera. Unity uh, principle number three, uh, verse four of chapter 14, judge justly, not unjustly. Judge justly, not unjustly. This is a word for DC, judge justly based on the facts. Notice what he says, who are you to judge your servant, the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. He will stand, he will stand, he says, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, if you read this in Greek, you would realize that the very first word of the sentence is su or you. The word, Y-O-U, you, the personal pronoun. When you put the personal pronoun at the head of the sentence, this is emphatic. This is in your face. This is our, our concept of who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? If somebody else has a slave, and that slave is their slave, who are you to say anything about that slave? He says, let's apply, because they had slaves in the Roman culture. They, all, they got the drill. You had no right to say anything about somebody else's slave. He says, if you belong to Jesus, you're his slave. So if you are his slave obeying him, then how can another slave of Christ condemn that slave whom Jesus accepts? But the legalistic brothers in that church, the, the Jews typically uh, in that church, they had laws, rules, and regulations that came from the Torah. Oh, we got our big 10 from Moses. And then we got another 600, 613, 614 additional commandments in the, in the Torah about what we needed to do. You know, and, 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 and they're, they're judging the Gentiles who are looser, who don't have all those laws, rules, and regulations when they come to the faith. And so they collided in this church. So the weaker brothers the Jews, who thought they were the stronger brother, and that's how it usually is, the weaker brother thinks they're the spiritual ones, Uh, they become legalistic. What's a legalist? Uh, Swindoll aptly defines it this way. Legalism is an attitude. It's a mentality based on pride. Really? That's my way, not your way. He says it's an obsessive conformity to an artificial standard for the purpose of exalting oneself. He says the legalist assumes the place of authority, boy, do they, And they push it to unwarranted extremes. That's the truth. He said it results in illegitimate control requiring unanimity, not unity. Unanimity, not unity. If you you do what I say, then you're holy and you're spiritual and you're maturing. But if you don't do what I say, uh, even though it's in a gray area where God said nothing about it, I'm saying something about it, so you better do it. Uh, If you were that kind of person, uh, legalist, uh, you would love this poem. I'll read it to you. You ready? In fact, you might even think this is in the Bible somewhere. Believe as I believe, no more no less, that I am right and no one else. Confess, feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat, drink what I drink, look as I look, do as I do, then and only then will I fellowship with you. (laughs) Did you get it, in the balcony? So if you're a weaker brother, you're thinking hallelujah, man, I think that's in Haggai or something. It sounds (laughs) biblical. No, uh, no, it's not in Haggai. Maybe Habakkuk. No, that's not, not there either. Uh, it's in Hezekiah. No, that's not a Bible book. Yeah, it's, no, it's not in there. But you're thinking, hey, well, that just sounds like the way you should do it. No, no. God is for diversity in gray areas to enjoy your life. So the legalist comes along and says, no, I need to judge my the other Christian, the servant of Jesus, because they're not doing things like how they think they should do them. Verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another? So, uh, so does this mean, just as a sidelight, that Christians can't judge anything? No. You just made a judgment to make that statement. Am I Is this true? Yeah. So now, now I've heard it a million times, and it, it always amazes me that non-Christians know this one verse, and they happen to know it in the King James, which totally blows my mind, because they say something like this. You know, judge not that ye not be judged. Huh? You're not even a Christian? You know the King James? Huh? Uh, You know, what I always ask him is, um, have you continued to read what Jesus said after that? Uh, no. Uh, You might need to. Because Jesus is not against judgment per se. What's he against? He's against hypocritical judgment. Meaning, you have a sin, X. Someone else has, this, has the same sin, X. You're condemning them for, how dare you do that sin, X. When God looks down and goes, you're guilty of the same sin. See, that's hypocritical judgment. But if it's not my sin, I can admonish another Christian to repent of that sin. I mean, if you keep on reading the passage uh, in Matthew 7, Jesus uh, Jesus is very clear, uh, he says in verse six of Matthew chapter seven. After he said, "Judge not, that ye not be judged," etc., uh, he says in verse six, he "says Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet, and they will turn and tear you to pieces." Did he not just make a what a judgment? How can I, as a Christian, tell in any kind of engagement with somebody where I'm presenting the the pearl of the gospel of Christ, how can I tell whether I'm throwing the pearl of the gospel before a swine who's trampling all over it with the nasty things they're saying? I mean, I know that some some of the godless will respond that way, but how do I know in wisdom when to pull away and not continue to do that? Well, that's wisdom. That's a judgment call. Jesus wasn't against judgment. He was against a judgment that was hypocritical. So let's just lay that to rest you can judge and you can admonish where sin is concerned, where doctrinal deviation is concerned. Consider 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. Notice what Paul says. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him. Why? Well, so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. As a brother. Why? Paul says if, if somebody is reading our doctrinal teaching, and they decide that they, that they don't like this doctrinal teaching, they're against this doctrinal teaching, but they're a Christian, you are to, well, that's wonderful that you have that viewpoint that denies the resurrection. Huh? No, you can't do that. Uh, he says, no, you must admonish that brother, hold them accountable for their sin and their deviation in a non-gray area. This is a doctrinal area. and uh, Don't associate with them so they can feel the shame of their, their erroneous position and come back to that which is, which is truth. So a Christian can judge and they can admonish where sin is concerned. But in a gray area, there should be loving, acceptance, grace, kindness, tons of slack. Because we have strong brothers in our church and we have weak brothers in our church. And there should be unity between them in an area that is gray. Item number three uh, tells us that when it comes to unity, we should always look for the fact that am I judging this situation justly or unjustly? So... If we move something on the stage, you should be thinking, oh, that really bothers me that the drums are now central. Well, no, it's no big deal. Judge justly, does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. Well, then move on, accept it. Could we have three jump kits on the stage? Well, that's, a, that's over the top right there. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you see what I mean? It's just that kind of stuff. It's flexibility. Unity key number four i love this verses five to six we'll read it first one person regards one day above another uh, another regards every day alike that'd be the gentile the the jews the first one Uh, each day each person must be fully convinced in his own mind Uh, he who observes a day like a jew shabbat uh, uh, observes it for the lord and he who eats does so for the lord for he gives thanks to god he who does not eat like a gentile uh, for the Lord he does not eat but he gives thanks to God so it doesn't matter what your position is he says God can accept opposing positions in gray areas did you know that a legalist can't remember it's my way n- no way no he says you can both be right in your positions and God will accept you in a gray area so on the one side the Jewish believer believed uh, that well uh, I've come to Christ but I still have all this traditional uh, understanding from the Old Testament and and, and, and I really did like Shabbat and I, and I really did like some of the feasts, like Peshach, Passover. You know, I like the Yom Kippur. I like some of those things. I like them. Uh, so I, I want to observe them, and I want to do them for the Lord. I know they don't save me, but I'll observe them because it's to the Lord. Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah. He says, if you observe those things, those laws, rules, and regulations that God expressly gave, and you do it unto the Lord, enjoy it. Go ahead. Then he said, on the other side of the equation, if you're like a Gentile, and every day was the same to you because you were a polytheist back then. And you, every day, Sunday, Saturday, what is that? You didn't care. Uh, if you're looser in your faith and, uh, and you look at your Jewish brethren and, and, and you say, hey, why do you guys place so much emphasis on Shabbat? I mean, why? You know when Shabbat starts, right? Shabbat starts Friday evening around six o'clock. And it lasts till Saturday around six o'clock. And let me tell you, when, it, uh, when we're in Israel, if you're coming with me in, in the next month when we're there, I'm going to tell you, when Shabbat happens, I mean, everything stops. Why? Because you're not supposed to work on Shabbat, the Sabbath. And so don't step into a Shabbat elevator. (laughs) I'm just saying, we will never see you again. (laughs) Because if there's 60 floors in the hotel, and you step in there with the the Orthodox Jews into it, because that's the one they get into. You get in there, they will all stand, and they will stare at that panel, and no one will touch it, because that's work. It's all programmed to work for you, but you have to go to every single floor. See what I mean? So if your your room's on the 59th floor, don't do it. But if that's your conviction, I mean, if you're convicted to the Lord, I will not work on the Sabbath, and this is what I will do. He says, just go with it. Just don't make that a rule for everybody else. See, that's legalism. But he says, if you're a Gentile and you have flexibility in your faith, well, then enjoy your flexibility because both positions, the weaker brother and the stronger brother, can be right. That's the wonder of the faith. Do you have that kind of flexibility? (laughs) Well, they didn't when I was in seminary. Uh, When I went to Dallas Seminary in 1981, uh, you know, I drove over there from San Diego with my beautiful wife. Uh, (laughs) She had never left the state of California. And so we crossed the border at Yuma. She's like, woo this is awesome. Look out the window, desert to infinity, all the way through Arizona, all the way through, you know, I've been there. Lordsburg, Deming, Las Cruces, Wow. It's going to be like flat moon-like, but enjoy it, honey, you know? Uh, and, and so we went to Texas and we moved in, uh, got a place, got ready for school um, and decorating our little apartment and everything. And so one day she said, I, it's after church, she said, I'd really like to hang some pictures. I'm like, okay, great. Uh, so I started looking around through all our boxes. I found my hammer uh, and I'm looking for the nails. Couldn't find any nails. I'm like, oh, I must have, I must have forgot the nails or didn't pack them or something. I couldn't find them anywhere. Never did find them. And so she said, "Well, I'd really like, you know, some picture hung today. So we're not, not doing anything." Uh, and so I said, "Okay, I'm going to go down to the local Kroger grocery store uh, and uh, you know, see if they got some nails." What day was it? Sunday. Sunday. So I p- jumped in my little Camaro, drove down there, parked, got out, went inside, uh, surveyed the store, found the aisle where all those things were for the home, uh, and I walked down there. It's a beautiful sunny day, uh, and there's this huge tarp, blue tarp over that whole section of all the stuff, the screws, the wood screws, the metal screws, etc. And that was the only part of the store that was covered. And so I'm, you know, I'm from California looking at this thing going, what in the world? So I'm actually walking around looking at the ceiling, looking for water damage, and I'm like, I don't (laughs) see any water damage. I don't see any buckets on the ground or anything. And um, so I thought, this is really bizarre. And so I thought, I need some, uh, I need need some nails. So I pulled the blue tarp back and began to (laughs) look back in there and found... You know, just what I needed, just the size to hang some pictures and the, the drywall size. I was, sl- was sliding them off the little metal rack, and this guy comes walking toward me, uh, an employee of Kroger, and one of those, you know, those little apron things they wear. He comes walking toward me, and I didn't see him. He blindsided me as I'm reaching for the contraband. <laughs> and I'm, I'm pulling it out, and he goes, hey, buddy, what are you doing? I'm like, hey, uh, I, I didn't even think he was talking to me. So I continued to pull him off and, and put, the, put the tar back. And he goes, what are you doing? I'm like, who are you talking to? I'm talking to you. I'm like, what, what's the problem? He goes, what are, you, what are you doing? I go, I'm buying nails. My wife wants to hang some pictures today. And I, and I need to get them. My marriage is on the line. I mean, <laughs> and I, he said, uh, you're not doing that today. Huh? Who are you to tell me that I can't buy nails on a Sunday? He said, I'm a Kroger official. You know what I mean? You're not buying nails today. Why not? He goes, do you realize what day it is? Yeah, it's Sunday. Yeah, that's why you can't buy a nail. Wait a minute. I have this huge argument over theology at a Kroger. <laughs> like, wait, wait a minute. Okay, so, so it's Sabbath. So you're telling me I can, I can have a hammer, but I can't have a nail. Because if I put two together, that's work, and I've broken the sab- Sabbath. Exactly, he said. I decided most prudent to slide those little nails behind the, the tarp and leave the store. And, and I got back home, and Liz was like, "Where's the nails? You're not going to believe what happened to me at Kroger." <laughs> I mean, see, remember the blue laws? Remember those things? Yeah. Do you, how many remember blue laws? There was a good side of them, and then there was not a good side of them. Uh, and what it was basically is, I mean, I get the whole concept and everything, but but it was an application of the weak brother making the stronger brother brother bend to their understanding of the Torah. And so they removed him eventually. Uh, but, but that's what it was. But it wasn't good judging. It wasn't just judgment. But my conscience was telling me what? My conscience was, was telling me, I mean, I was listening to Jiminy Cricket. Remember Jiminy Cricket? See, I mean, he got this whole conscience stuff from the Apostle Paul, or Disney did. Remember the little angel flies into the room with Pinocchio on Jiminy and, and tells him that she's floating there with a the little wand? And remember Jiminy? And if you don't know what I'm saying, just Google it and you'll run into Jiminy Cricket. She tells little Jiminy Cricket, you know, always remember let your conscience be your guide. Well that that was Paul. Paul says in any situation that's gray, make sure that your mind is wrapped around it, it's okay. So if it's okay for you, then it's okay. And if it's not okay for you, then don't do it. That's a pretty simple principle. Let your conscience be your guide in a gray area. So if my conscience tells me in a gray area that it's okay to do X, you shouldn't condemn me for doing X. And if your conscience tells you you must be more restrictive in a gray area, I shouldn't condemn you for being restrictive. We should both look at each other and say, praise God for you. There should be unity. And last, our last unity principle is very interesting. Uh, Note, I mean really note, how you judge in the here and now will be judged in the hereafter. You might need to read that again. How you judge, how I judge other people in the here and now is gonna come back to you later when God plays the tapes. How do I know that? Well, notice what he says. For one of us not, does not live for himself and, and no one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Then if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, who owns us? The Lord does. Uh, for this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be both the Lord of the, the dead and the living. What's Paul getting at there? He says, when, when you didn't know Jesus, like this young lady in our first service, she, 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 now she does but when she, when she didn't know Jesus when you didn't know Jesus you just lived for yourself you did what you wanted hung out with who you wanted to drank what you drank smoked what you wanted talked like you wanted you didn't care because you were accountable to you but then when you ran into Jesus when you saw yourself as a sinner who needs a savior everything changed all of a sudden your life is recentered. now it's not about you it's about who? it's about him you're not on the throne of your life anymore. He's on the throne of your life. So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to live for him, which means you are accountable to him because you're his child. You're accountable for how you behave as his child. This is what Paul's getting at. Verse 10 says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? As if you're a stronger brother, why do you look at contemptuous ways at Jews who observe feast days? It says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, heavy on the word all. For it is written in the Old Testament, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God, so that each of one of one of us will give an account to God himself. You'll stand there. When you stand before God on judgment day, and he's going to evaluate your life in many different ways, he's going to want to know in the gray areas, how did you behave? Did you strive for unity or did you strive for disunity? Were you legalistic? Uh, or, or, or were you full of grace and acceptance? I mean, how, how will you fare on that day? Jesus says in Matthew twelve thirty six, and these are very sobering words. He says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word they utter. <laughs> that would change DC discussions, would it not? If they actually believed every single word spoken in private and in public, you're gonna be held accountable for? Yeah, you will be, especially a Christian. God's going to know, how in a gray area did you talk? Were they careless words? Really, Christian houses should be extremely quiet homes. (laughs) Wow, they're such a quiet people. I mean, go to church, they don't even talk to each other. Yeah, we're being very careful, you know, because God's going to judge the things that we say. It says in Second Corinthians five ten, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ. We all will stand there, and when you stand there, when I stand there, and He puts your life on review, do not turn and look for me in the crowd to come as a as a character witness. <laughs> uh, Lord, could you wait just a moment? Could I call my pastor? He knows me. Uh, no, it's, it's between you and Christ. Why? Well, how's He going to judge you? First Corinthians three. He tells you how He's going to judge you. Verse twelve of 1 Corinthians three. Now, if any man builds on the foundation, Jesus is the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality, not the quantity, the quality of each man's work. He's gonna, he's gonna judge your motivations. He says, if any man's work which he has built remains, he will receive a reward. He's gonna reward you for great service to him. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. translated, no no Christian's going to get there and lose their salvation because you can't lose your salvation. But they might lose rewards that he's going to give them. And you know, when he gives you, gives you those, that's a whole other sermon series, but when he gives you those rewards anyway, you're going to lay those crowns at his feet and worship in him anyway, right? But what an honor to have Christ reward you. But Christians are composed of uh, different kinds of things in this life, things that are gold and things that are straw. I would say where you place a chair on a stage for a pastor is kind of straw. This is irrelevant. But a, but a gold would be, hey, I can accept if the new pastor wants to do that. Why not? To reach the young people. You see what I mean? It's striving for unity. Which are you going for? Gold or straw? I close with some practical advice in gray areas. Six things. Number one, questions to ask yourself. Will the activity that you're thinking about doing bring God glory? Or will it detract from his glory? Two, Will that activity you're thinking about doing in a gray area increase or diminish your witness for the gospel of Christ? Three, will this activity you're thinking of doing in a gray area potentially set you up to be a slave to sin? If so, walk away. Four, will this activity in a gray area cause your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, uh, to be desecrated in some fashion? Then don't desecrate it by a gray area. Five, will your participation in this gray area cause other believers who struggle with that area well, to have a problem in their faith, then don't do it. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 8. last, will your participation in this gray area be perceived as a thing that is highly unwise? Then don't do it because it's not wise. And if you're wondering if it's wise or not, then just go seek the counsel of the many. Find some godly people and say, yeah, I'm thinking about enjoying this gray area. But if I do it, because I have liberty to do it, is it wise or unwise? If they collectively tell you unwise, then don't do it. What does God want in his church unity what do we usually get all upset about things that aren't really all that important maybe we focus on the things that are important let's pray God help us to be a mature or really a maturing church we are a mature church help us to continue to mature in these areas that we can laugh about but they can become extremely caustic and problematic help us to be bound together in unity over the things that are essential that matter most and um, might we be the the light that we need to be because we are unified And may those who don't know you and don't walk with you today uh, see our unity in Christ, the joy that we have, the freedom that we have, and and might they want that by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. It's like California outside, so.